welcome to the Crack Open a Classic podcast, a podcast where I read a chapter or two, an episode aloud, ask questions to help you think about the chapter, and open the world of classics to you. So grab a cup of coffee or tea, and let's jump into the chapter. Chapter 16, A Stroll on the Ocean Bed. This compartment was properly speaking, both the arsenal and the dressing room of the Nautilus. A dozen sets of diving suits were hanging on the wall, ready for use. When he saw them, Ned Land showed an obvious repugnance to wearing one. But Ned, I said to him, the forests of the Isle of Crespo are really underwater forests. I see, muttered the disappointed harpooner, whose hopes of tasting fresh meat were fading. What about you, Monsieur Aranax? Are you going to put on one of those things? It is a must, Ned. Well, that's up to you, sir, replied the Canadian, shrugging his shoulders. As far as I am concerned, I would never wear one unless forced to do so. Nobody is going to force you, Master Ned, said Captain Nemo. What about Conseil? Is he going to risk it? asked Ned. I go wherever Monsieur goes, replied Conseil. At a call from the captain, two members of the crew came to help us put on those heavy waterproof garments, made of the seamless rubber and designed to withstand considerable pressure. They resembled suits of armor, but were both strong and flexible, consisting of a pair of trousers and a tunic. The trousers ended in thick boots with heavy leaden soles. The materials of the tunic was stretched over bands of copper, which crossed the chest, protecting it from the pressure of the water and leaving the lungs free to breathe. The sleeves ended in a supple pair of gloves, which did not interfere with the movements of the hand. All this was a far cry from the bulky diving suits, the cork breastplates, the waistcoats, water suits and boxes, etc., which were invented and so highly praised in the 18th century. Captain Nemo and one of his companions, a Herculean fellow who must have possessed enormous strength, and Conseil and I were soon wearing our diving attire. The only thing left to do was to encase our heads in our round metal helmets. But before proceeding to this operation, I asked the captain permission to examine the guns that had been reserved for our use. A member of the crew of the Nautilus gave me a gun of simple design, whose large butt was made of steel, which was hollow inside. This served to hold the supply of compressed air that a valve worked by a spring released in the chamber. A box of projectiles in a groove in the butt end contained about 20 electric bullets. They were forced into the chamber by means of another spring. After one shot was fired, the next would be made ready. Captain Nemo, I said, this is a perfect weapon and easy to handle. I asked nothing better than to try it out, but how are we going to get to the bottom of the sea? At this moment, Monsieur le Professeur, the Nautilus is lying in 30 feet of water. We are all set to leave. But how will we get out of here? You will see. Captain Nemo put his head inside his spherical helmet, Conseil and I did likewise, but not before we had heard an ironical, Have a good hunt! from the Canadian. The top part of our garment ended in a threaded copper collar upon which the metal helmet was screwed. Three holes protected by thick glass made it possible for us to see in every direction by just turning our heads inside. As soon as the helmet was in place, the rockerill apparatus, which had been placed on our backs began to work, and I realized I could breathe with ease. With the rum corf lamp hanging from my belt and gun in hand, I was ready to go, but I had to admit that imprisoned in this heavy clothing and weighed down by my soles of lead, I could not have moved. 
However, this lasted for a moment only, and I found myself pushed into a small chamber adjoining the cloakroom. My companions, towed in the same manner, followed. I heard a watertight door close behind us, and we were in total darkness. A few minutes later, I heard a high-pitched hissing, and I felt a cold sensation rising from my feet to my chest. Obviously, a valve had been turned inside the ship, letting in the water from the outside. We were soon immersed when the chamber was full. A second door on the side of the Nautilus opened. Something like a twilight appeared, and a moment later our feet were touching the bottom of the sea. How can I possibly remember and describe that excursion under the waters of that ocean? Words are so inadequate to describe such marvels that the brush of an artist is incapable of reproducing the extraordinary effects to be seen in the depths of a clear sea. How could a pen describe them? Captain Nemo walked ahead, and his companions, a few paces behind, followed us. Kensei and I walked side by side, as if it were possible to exchange words through our metal headgear. I no longer felt the weight of my clothes, of my shoes, of my air tank, nor the weight of the thick spherical helmet inside which my head could toss about like an almond in its shell. The reason was that in all these objects, being immersed in water, lost a weight equal to that of the liquid displaced. Thanks to this physical law, first discovered by Archimedes, I felt quite comfortable. I was no longer an inert mass, but I could move with considerable freedom. The light was filtered through at a depth of 30 feet, was astonishingly strong. The sun's rays easily penetrated the aqueous mass, dispersing its color. I could clearly make out objects a hundred yards away, Beyond that, the sea bottom began to develop subtle shades of ultramarine, turning blue in the distance and fading away into a vague obscurity. Indeed, the water that surrounded me was somewhat like air, denser than the atmosphere on the earth, but almost as clear. Above me, I could see the quiet surface of the sea. We were walking on fine sand with a smooth, even surface, not undulated like the sand on beaches that retains the imprints of the waves. This dazzling carpet reflected the rays of the sun with surprising intensity and explained the powerful reflection that permeated all that liquid mass. Would I be believed if I were to say that at the depth of 30 feet I could see as well as in broad daylight? For a quarter of an hour I trod the sparkling sand strewn with the impalpable dust of millions of shells. The hull of the Nautilus, resembling a long shoal, disappeared by degrees, but later on, when darkness fell over the waters, a reflector with its clear rays would help us on our return journey to the ship. The effect is a difficult one to understand by those who have only seen misty beams that stand out in the dark on land. On land, the dust that saturates the air gives them the appearance of luminous fog, but on the sea and under the sea, those electric beams are transmitted with incomparable purity. We kept on walking. The vast sandy plain seemed boundless. My hands seemed to be pushing aside liquid currents that closed quietly behind me, and my footprints disappeared quickly under the pressure of the water. Soon I could discern the outline of forms in the distance, and I recognized them as magnificent rocks carpeted with beautiful zoophytes, and I was greatly impressed by this strange sight. It was then ten o'clock in the morning. The rays of the sun, which fell on the surface of the waves, were reflected as if passing through a prism, and tinted the fringes of flowers, rocks, shells, and polyps with all the colors of the solar spectrum. It was an enchanting spectacle, a feast for the eyes, a fairyland of interwoven colors. 
a veritable kaleidoscope of green, yellow, orange, violet, indigo, and blue, the canvas of an obsessed colorist using all the colors of his palette. If only I could have communicated those vivid sensations I was feeling to Kinsay, if only I could have vied with him in expressing our deep emotions and admiration, if only I had known how to communicate our thoughts by means of that sign language used by Captain Nemo and his companions. For want of anything better, I kept talking to myself. I kept muttering into that copper helmet I was wearing, wasting words and air needed perhaps for our return. In the presence of that magnificent spectacle, Kinsay had stopped also evidently that worthy lad surrounded by such fine specimens of zoophytes and mollusks was very busy classifying them classifying the soil was literally covered with polyps and echinoderms various species of isis cornelaires living in isolated spots clusters of virginal oculines formerly known as white coral prickly fungi resembling mushrooms clinging anemones all created a brilliant flower guarded enameled with porphyrtiae with their colorettes of blue tentacles sea stars that studded that sandy plain warded asterophytons which resembled the fine lace embroidered by the hands of water nymphs whose festoons were set in motion by the gentle eddies caused by our footsteps i found it very painful to crush underfoot those brilliant specimens of mollusks which covered the ground by the thousands concentric home shells hammer shells donacidae veritable jumping shells top shells red helmet shells shells with angel wings phasmidia and many others all the creations of the fecund and inexhaustible sea we had to keep moving however above our heads were schools of phacelia portuguese man-of-war with tentacles floating in their train medusa whose umbrellas of opal or rose pink touched with a tint of blue sheltered us from the rays of the sun fiery pelagae which had it been dark would have lighted our path with that phosphorescent light i saw all these marvels with a quarter of a mile scarcely pausing to have a closer look and following captain nemo who beckoned me to come on soon the nature of the terrain changed the sandy plain was succeeded by a layer of viscous mud which americans call ooze consisting entirely of siliceous calcareous shells then we walked through a stretch of seaweed and pelagian vegetation that had not yet been uprooted by the waters and which grew in profusion it was like a closely knit lawn so soft underfoot that it could have competed with the most luxurious carpets woven by human hands but as we walked along with this green carpet under our feet there was no lack of verdure overhead a light network of marine plants classified under that endless family of seaweed of which more than two thousand species are known grew crisscross just below the surface of the water I could see long strips of fucus, some globular, some tuberous, laurentiae, and cladostophae, of most delicate foliage, some rhodominia, palmatia, resembling the fan of a cactus. I noticed that the green plants stayed close to the top, and the red ones were deeper down, leaving to the back a brown hydrophytes, the task of forming gardens and flower beds in the lower depths of the ocean algae are truly a marvel of creation one of the wonders of the world's flora this family is responsible for producing both the smallest and the biggest vegetation in the world thousands of these most imperceptible plants have been counted in a cubic inch of water and seaweed has been found whose length exceeds a hundred and fifty feet about an hour and a half had passed since we had left the nautilus it was about midday i confirmed this by the sun's rays which were no longer refracted the magical colors gradually disappeared 
and the emerald and sapphire tints vanished from our firmament. We walked with a regular step that resounded on the ground with surprising intensity. The slightest sounds were transmitted with a speed to which the ear is not accustomed on land. Indeed, water is a better conductor of sound than air, and it has four times the speed of air. The ground began to slope rather sharply, and the light became uniform in color. We reached a depth of over 300 feet and were thus subjected to a pressure of about 10 atmospheres. My diving suit was designed so well that I was not affected by this pressure. I experienced some discomfort in moving my fingers, but even this disappeared. As for the fatigue that one would expect after walking two hours wearing such a strange diving suit, there was no sign of it. On the contrary, my movements, aided by the water, came quite easily. When we reached the depth of 300 feet, I could still see the rays of the sun, though feebly. Their brilliance had turned into a reddish twilight halfway between day and night. However, we could still see where we were going, and we had no need yet to use our Rumkoff lamps. Captain Nemo stopped. He waited for us to catch up with him, and with two fingers he pointed to some dark masses visible in the shadow not too far away. That must be the forest of the Isle of Crespo, I thought. And so it was. Questions to consider after reading. Ned doesn't trust the diving devices. Do you think he is afraid? Can you imagine the scene Professor Aranax describes? Thank you for listening to today's chapter. If you would like to discuss the questions, follow me on the Crack Open a Classic podcast Instagram page and comment on today's chapter's post. If you like this podcast, please share it with others so we can get the word out about more classics. If you would like to suggest a book to be read, email me at crackopenaclassicpodcast at gmail.com. Check back tomorrow for the next chapter in this adventure.